Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And Father, we have no idea what that siren is about, but we pray your grace upon the person or peoples who need it and upon those who will care for them and help them. We pray this through Christ. Amen. There are many ways in which to think about the history of the world. Sometimes we think about the history of the world in terms of uh, significant events or turning points. Sometimes it has to do with particular nations that arise to power. Sometimes it's about specific people who do extraordinary things or who create scenarios that bring a shift or a change to the world. Sometimes it's a, it's a about wars. There, there are all kinds of ways in which we might say, this is how we understand the history of the world. One of those ways, I think, which we may not consciously think about it, but I suspect that somewhere in the subconscious we think about it, is that there is a way of thinking about the history of the world in which we look at who's in and who's out. Who has the power and who doesn't? And who's fighting for power toward those who have it because they don't? And as you look at the history of the world, there is this continual transition, this continual thought process and movement about people who are in and people who are out. And the reality of the church, if we're honest about it, is that often that's how we view the history of the church, too. When we think about the progression of the church, you can look through the history of it, and there is this sense in which it keeps coming back to people who are in and out, and the viewpoint of, I'm in, they're out, they're in, I'm out. And I think there's something of that kind of idea that is, that is at play here as Jesus appears before Annas. After Jesus is arrested in the garden, when he surrenders himself to those who have come to take him, surprisingly, they do not take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. They take him to Annas, the former high priest. Now, the thing about Annas is that he, of course, at that time, the, the high priesthood was not a succession of people as it originally was. It was something people bought and sold. If you, if you paid the Roman government enough money and you knew the right people, you could take over the place of being high priest. And you used that position not just for more power, but to gain more wealth. And Annas was a master of that. After he was, was put out, because the Romans were not real thrilled with him, Quirinius put him out of the role of high priest. His five sons succeeded him. And now Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, is the current high priest. As I think about that story, it kind of makes me think about like a mafia don or something. You know, where, where the, the, the head of the, of the crime family retires 
and his sons take over, and they look like they're making decisions, but really when, the, when it's a central decision to be made, it's, it's the old man they come back to. And that seems to be what's happening here. Annas may not be the official high priest, but he is probably the de facto high priest. And so they take him to Annas first. And Annas begins to interview Jesus, and he asks him a question. What are you telling your disciples? What are you teaching your disciples? It's, I think it, it's a sort of a sense of reconnaissance that he's trying to do. How much, how, how invested are your disciples in your rebellion, in this movement you've started? How violent might they be? How difficult are they going to be for us to deal with? We need more information so we know how to deal with them. And there is something in that question that, that belies this sense of, of power and really power in secrecy that, that, that Annas is, is moving toward. Annas, his whole life, operates out of a position of secrecy that brings him power. He has more information so he can control people and circumstances and things to his own benefit. And everybody knows there is a sense of, of power that comes with secrecy. If you have insider information, you can take advantage of that. Even little children know that. I mean, what do you hear them say? I know something you don't know. Right? There's something about that mindset of I have information that you don't have, and that makes me more significant, that makes me more valuable, that puts me in a position of power, it puts me in a position to be able to control you to some degree. And because Annas thinks that way and operates that way, he assumes Jesus does too. Who else wouldn't? Why would you not operate that way? Because the point of life is to get more. The point of life is to accumulate more. The point of life is to have more power, more wealth, more uh, influence. That's the point of life from Annas' perspective. And he can't imagine anybody else having a different perspective. And so he comes to Jesus and says, tell me, what are you talking to your disciples about? Give me the insider information because that's what matters. And Jesus says to him, look, he says, everyone knows what I teach. I preach regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I've not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Jesus says, I speak openly. Because, because even though Annas operates from a position of secrecy, Jesus operates from a position of openness, transparency. The nature of the kingdom is about openness. It's about transparency. It's about vulnerability. The nature of the kingdom is not, how can I manipulate people to get more? The nature of the kingdom is, how can I live in such a way to give away more, to be more open? to be more honest, to be more transparent, to be more vulnerable. That's the nature of the kingdom. And that's the good news, that the gospel is not for people who have insider information. The gospel is not for people who have figured out things that other people haven't figured out. 
The gospel isn't for a select few people who know enough or who have experienced enough or who are privileged enough. The gospel is for everyone. You go back to, again, the most famous verse in the Bible that anybody growing up in Sunday school memorizes. For God so loved the world, all people, everywhere, no matter what. It's not for a select few. It's not for a a small minority. It's for the whole world. And there's not some secret thing about the gospel that says until you have the key to that, you can't get in. You can't be a part of it. And maybe we'll give you the secret. Maybe we won't. We'll just hold that over you as a a way of power. And Jesus says, look, I I've been open about everybody. I've taught everything. I've, I've, I've brought the gospel to everyone, including the people that Annas thinks are not worth it. And that's the good news for you and me. That's the good news for everyone. And sometimes in the church, we have had this mindset that the gospel is, for, is about people who are in and not for people who are out. It's for people who are deserving, and not for people who are undeserving. It's for people who have have figured out enough things, and not for people who haven't been able to figure out enough things. The gospel is for everyone. Not everyone receives it. Not everyone wants it, but it's for everyone. That's why we tell people. That's why we, we talk about what's going on in the world. That's why it matters to us. Jesus doesn't teach his disciples one thing and then tell everybody else something else. It's not as if Jesus says to his disciples, pulls them aside and says, Look, I know. I said to everybody out there, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But here's the honest truth. Don't worry about that. Just do what you want to. Do the best you can. It doesn't really matter. That's not what Jesus says. In fact, if Jesus says anything different to the disciples than he does to everybody else, it's because he is making more demands on them, not less. He wants them to go deeper with him, not less. But it's not as if there is some mindset of saying, well, these people are in, these people are out, we're better, they're not. The gospel's for everyone. I think there's something going on here when Jesus says to them, why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. I don't think Jesus is talking about the disciples here. I think he's talking about the spies that the temple sent out numerous times to hear and to judge and to test Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying to Annas, look, Ask the people you sent to hear me. Ask the spies that you sent to test me. Ask those people who came and asked me questions to try to trick me. Ask them. Don't ask me. Ask them, the people you sent, the people you trust. Ask them what I said. As soon as Jesus says that, one of the soldiers reaches over and slaps him across the head. And he says to him, hey, don't you know who you're talking to? Man, if it was me, I think I would have said, what do you mean, who am I talking to? Do you know who you're talking to? 
Do you know who I am? And then I would have knocked him on his backside just so he got the message. Of course, Jesus doesn't do that. But Jesus doesn't let it go either. Jesus doesn't just take it. Jesus says, so why are you hitting me? If I said something wrong, then prove it. But I'm speaking the truth. So why are you hitting me? Why are you beating on me? There is something in Jesus' reply that won't let Annas get away with violence. There's something in his reply that Jesus says, I'm not going to make what you want to do to me easy. And it's not because Jesus is trying to talk them out of doing to him what they want to do. It's not for his sake. It's because Jesus is confronting the violence and the injustice that tends to come out of the power structures of this world. If Jesus doesn't in some way confront this violence against him, they're going to think that violence and injustice don't matter to God. Jesus is not saying, look, stop doing that to me because I don't want you to, I don't want you to do to me what you want to do. Jesus is saying to them, look, I'm not going to make this easy for you. I'm going to make this hard for you because I want you to understand that injustice and violence are not the way of God and the kingdom. Jesus is confronting that mindset that is so prevalent in our world. As we talked last week, the violence doesn't necessarily always have to be physical. Sometimes it's emotional violence. Sometimes it's verbal violence. it's not the way of the kingdom. And Jesus confronts that. And I think it's another love note that Jesus sends to, to Annas of saying, look, you, do you want to live your life this way? This is not of God. This is not of the kingdom. And there are consequences to this. And I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about the direction you're taking and the decisions you're making. Do you really want this to be how your life is defined? Jesus knows Annas' mindset. He knows his heart. Jesus knows that Annas' heart is as cold as stone. He knows that. But Jesus never stops loving. Jesus never stops sending him love notes. Jesus never stops attempting to try to change his mind and soften his heart that he would see who Jesus is and receive him. He never stops. And sometimes that love that Jesus has for him and for us is comfort. And sometimes it's confrontation. But they're both love. And Jesus sometimes will confront us through the Holy Spirit about the direction our lives are taking, about decisions we're making that he knows are leading us down a path of destruction. Is it love for him to just say, 
I don't want to make him feel bad. I'll let that go. Or is it love for him to turn to us and say, look, this is not right. And you need to hear that. You need to be confronted by that. And sometimes we don't want to hear it. Often we don't want to hear it. We don't like being confronted. But Jesus is not content to just leave us as we are. He is continually moving us toward a deeper understanding of him and a deeper relationship with him because his goal for us is that we would be who he created us to be, people who are holy in his image. And the only way that will happen is if we are listening to him and seeing him with hearts that are open to him. The power structures of first century Palestine, the power structures that continue to today often miss Jesus because what's most important to them is power. And the question I think that's continually confronting us is what's most important to us? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it Jesus or is it wealth? Is it Jesus or is it power? Is it Jesus or is it influence? Is it Jesus or is it politics? Is it Jesus or is it relationships, as important as they are? All of the, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if they're more important to us than Jesus, they would drive a wedge between us and Jesus. And that wedge will continue to get wider and wider, and our hearts will continue to get harder and colder. And the gospel keeps confronting us with the fact that Jesus, God creates us for more than settling for who we are and what we are. He wants to take us to deeper, higher things with him. The only people who hear Jesus and see Jesus are the people who want to. I've spent a lot of time thinking as I read through the Gospels is, why is it that, that some of the people completely miss Jesus and some of the people understand Jesus and are open to Jesus and, and receive him? And I think it has to do with the mindset. Do we want to see? Do we want to hear? And some people do and some people don't. It doesn't stop God from continually loving us and wooing us and and coming after us. But ultimately, it comes down to do we want to hear, do we want to see, or do we not? living with that mindset of openness to wherever God may lead us and whatever God may say to us and however God may be working in us. Do we want that? I, I, I never tire of thinking about the story of Samuel Bringle. And I've shared it with you before, but it's, it's such a... When I first heard it, it was such a monumental story in my life. 
Samuel Bringle was born, I think, around 18, in the late 1880s. He was educated at uh, DePaul University, a very prestigious university at that time, and, and then went to Boston University to, to do a master's degree. He was one of the few preachers in America at that time that had a master's degree. And he started out in ministry, but when he was there at Boston University, uh, he heard William Booth speak in Boston, and he was so moved by him that he got this, this, this Holy Spirit got a hold of him in a new way about a life that was more and, and deeper. And, and he decided that, that God was calling him to join the Salvation Army. And so he applied, and they accepted him. He on a boat, he went to England, and, and he went there to, to begin his work with them. And William Booth said that, that he, he told the, the other leadership, they said, you know, we need to find out what this guy is made of. He was probably the, he was the only member of the Salvation Army at that time that had a, a graduate degree. He might have been one of the few people that had a college degree. He was a tremendous orator. He could captivate crowds for, for hours at a time. And so when he got to England, he was expecting to be sent out to preach, to use his gifts and his abilities. But when he got there, he was assigned the task of polishing the boots of all the soldiers. And every day, hour after hour, he would sit down in a, in a, a dingy basement half full of water, polishing the boots of former prostitutes and former alcoholics while they were out preaching the gospel. And he said one day after he had been doing this for a little while, a little voice came to him and said, Bringle, if I've ever seen a fool, I'm looking at one now. And he said it was as if a, a, a little bit of hell came over his spirit. And he could feel his very body tensing up and becoming hard and cold toward God. And he looked up and he said, God, did I make a mistake? I mean, am I, am I really not using the gifts that you've given me? Is this wrong? And he said, in that moment, he heard a second voice. And that voice said to him, Samuel, I've called you to this. And if I can wash the disciples' feet, you're not too good to, wash, to shine their boots, are you? And he said, when I surrendered to that moment, when I listened to God's voice to me in that moment, he said, I felt heaven as close to me right then as I did at any other moment in the rest of my life. You see, the question for every one of us is not trying to figure out who's in and who's out. The question for us is, God is speaking. Are we listening? Our spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of 
many other people depends on our answer to that question. Father, we thank you that you speak into our hearts and our lives, our minds. Give us grace. Give us courage. Give us the want to. To hear you. And to receive your truth. Amen.